Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Classroom to Coffee. Today I have a very special guest, uh, as promised. He is the first teacher turned copywriter I ever met. Like, I think he, he also studied like English and literature in college. Um, and then he was a professor. I looked up, I looked up your LinkedIn. <laughs> a professor at Miami Dade. Dad, how do you pronounce that? Uh, Miami Dade. Miami Dade College uh, about eight years ago. Um, and uh, he's the first financial copywriter I've also met. And, he, you know, meeting him was the first time I realized, like, hey, there's a lot more I can do with um, my qualifications and my experience than just uh, what I thought. You know, I thought I was just limited to uh, teaching English online for the rest of my life. And there's nothing wrong with that, and that's actually how I funded my start in copywriting. But yeah, meeting Sean McIntyre, whom you will meet in a moment, uh, is the first time I realized like there's a lot more I can do in my, you know, my my creative background and you know my uh, creative writing degree. So, I, and I just saw him gesture at the camera, but I have to let him know, actually, I'm just recording the audio, because <laughs> I'm weird like that. Anyway, it's time for him to introduce himself now before I keep rambling. Um, do you want to share with us, like, what you currently do, um, all the amazing things that, that uh, you're up to right now? Oh, certainly, Tanya. I'm I'm pleased and delighted to be on the show, and I'm pleased and delighted to be talking to you, and also saluting at the camera and all the people that are listening today. They they listening felt that salute. So, I I currently am a uh, copywriter, uh, but I sort of span uh, editorial, sales copy, and marketing copy for a number of businesses that I own. Uh, the biggest one of them being a content licensing business that mainly does business in Japan. So I write a number of newsletters for them. I do marketing consulting for them. Uh, I write sales copy. There's an American offshoot of that business called DIY Wealth at DIYWealth.com. We have a YouTube channel as well where I'm the sort of chief editor and an analyst uh, where I use uh, not only my background in writing, but also my background in finance and generally tell people uh, to, to be better about saving their money and trying to live a more fulfilling, wealthy life. Um, I also write, uh, have written some freelance copy, but I haven't had time in the last year or so for other businesses. I mainly have to write editorial and copy for my own businesses. Uh, that also includes the show Copy That, uh, which has a YouTube channel and has a steadily growing following. I don't know why, but I guess some people must like my shiny, endearing, bald head. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, and a smattering of other things too. You know, I've, I've had, uh, three agencies that I've opened and closed. I've, uh, I also am a part owner in a transmission company. I'm a part owner in a tutoring business in Austin, Texas. Uh, general entrepreneurship and trying to spin up a bunch of plates and seeing what sticks. And really right now, uh, financial copy and editorial and copy that are the two things that are really sticking. See, I knew you were up to way more things than I can dig up from, like, your website and um, your LinkedIn. Like, a tutoring business in Austin? <laughs> I had no idea. Um, and and for anyone listening, his uh, DIY Wealth YouTube channel is extremely entertaining and educational, and I, I highly recommend it. 
just even the thumbnails, every time he, he posts them on LinkedIn, I'm just like, you, you have to watch this. You can't, like, just scroll past this a thumbnail like that. Um, yeah. So I, I have to say, my wife does the uh, thumbnails for both DIY Wealth and for Copy That, and I have to say that her work is utterly exceptional, as with all things about her. So, so she does the thumbnails for Copy That? Yeah. The ones where like they she she transplants their heads onto like baby bodies. And <laughs> that's indeed, amazing. Indeed. Wow. Yeah. Um, I actually send people like like teachers and people who hit me up on LinkedIn and they're like, hey, what's copywriting and um, you know what's a what's the big deal about it? Actually, I I send uh everyone to copy that and to um Alex Myers um six hour amazing copy training like that's the first place i point everyone because yeah, i mean not to this on your shiny head but you know you just there's a wealth of information you can get just from the copy that channel and and like um the six hour training that alex posted that's actually where i got my foundation in copywriting like yeah. he he really like he really was right when he said that everything you need to know you can get it in these six hours. Um, yeah. And I noticed from stalking you <laughs> and your experience on LinkedIn that, okay, so you were you started off as a professor at Miami Dade College eight years no, ago. No, 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 no. Um, well, I'll just sort of give the, the okay. Reader's Digest version of my – so um, when I was getting my first master's degree, it was at the California State University of Northridge, oh, and okay. they had a program that – basically covered tuition and gave a stipend if you taught some freshman level rhetoric classes. And I was like, I like money. I do that. And so I uh, signed up. It was about a year of learning pedagogy. I love pedagogy. And, you know, after that, I was basically teaching at the age of, I think I was 23 or 24 when I became a college professor, um, something slightly below an adjunct. Mm -hmm. And uh, did that until I got my, you know, finished up my first master's degree in literature. And then um, at the same time, I was also uh, studying and trying to get a second bachelor's degree in linguistics. And during that time, I was also taking a number of classes in teaching English as a second language. And so I was just shadowing teachers. I was preparing to live abroad and teach English abroad. Uh, but then I got accepted at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign for a master's in fine art and in creative writing uh, because I guess I'm that good. <laughs> Didn't end up finishing the linguistics degree, finished the master's degree, moved to Illinois, and they similarly had a, hey, teach freshman composition in exchange for, you know, a little bit of money. And so I did that mm -hmm. and so taught for my three years while I was at the University of Illinois. And then uh, my ex-wife, my wife at the time, she got accepted into medical school in Miami. So I moved from Illinois to Miami, and I got a job as an adjunct professor at Miami Day College. And uh, one of the things that I uh, learned along the way was how much I utterly, utterly detest grading papers. High <laughs> <laughs> five! Oh. I... Uh, it, the teaching is fun. Yeah. It, seeing a concept of the cosmos awaken in a student's mind as you explain a concept in a new or novel way that finally clicks with them. That's amazing. Mm 
supremely fulfilling. That's perhaps why I have a YouTube channel that teaches copy. But the actual act of sitting down with, you know, I was doing a fourth before. And so that's four classes in the fall, four classes in the spring. Um, so, you know, that was about 30 students per class. So 30 times four, that's 120 papers times four papers per class. That's 480 papers per semester. Oh, God. And, and like, I, I'm a little bit of a tryhard. I have to admit that. And so, like, I wouldn't just, like, sit down and, you know, you know, write out, read, where's Waldo? Like, you know, I would actually sit down and try to give people comprehensive feedback on yeah. every single essay. Yeah. I guarantee that almost nobody read the feedback that I gave them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, it was it was a slog, man. It was It was painful. On top of that, like, I was getting, you know, adjunct salary, which is, like, I think after taxes was, like, $18,000 in take-home. So I literally had to moonlight as a waiter when I was living in Miami. And I I literally would, you know, work full day, you know, from, like, I I tried to do the early morning classes there. So it was, like, 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning until about, like, sometime in the afternoon. And then I would drive to um, a, a place called Books and Books in in Miami, and I you know, worked at the cafe. I was a barista and a surfer there, and I would work the late shift. And what I would do is I would actually take student papers and keep them in my server book. And I would, in between like taking orders or you know while I was waiting, I would like be grading student papers in my server book. Um, it was, uh, how should I say, an unsustainable lifestyle. <laughs> When when they like reach um like a point of no return, you're like I I I can't do this anymore. So I definitely hit that point. Um, so here's the thing: at Miami Dade College, they actually uh, you know similar to what uh, you described before you started the podcast. Uh, I was on a bit of a probationary period as an adjunct, and they they said you're. All your reviews are great. People love you. You get the politics of this. You're a good teacher. All like all all the classroom observations have been really good. Do you want to be on tenure track? And I was like, well, my again, my ex-wife, my wife at the time, like we had to go. So medical school, it's four years. And she had to do two years in Miami and two years in West Palm Beach during a period of time, which are called rotations. Mm-hmm. Uh, rotations are when a medical student goes from you know, surgery to you know, pathology to and basically just shadows doctors for a certain amount of time to learn what they do. And so the second, you know, set of two years, you know, she was going to be up in West Palm Beach. And so I was like, okay, tenure track, that's like the dream for a teacher, you know, that's, you know, like a huge boost in pay, benefits, you get in the union, like, uh, it was, you know, basically you get clout and everybody loves clout. (laughs) Um, but I had to turn that down because, you know, marriage. And um, what I ended up doing was I applied to a college called uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University. And they were a supremely, like, Christian college. I, w- I was raised Catholic and uh, thought I was Catholic until I, until my mom told me that I was Jewish at the age of 27. Now I don't know what the hell I am. <laughs> um, uh, but they were like, hey, yeah, you can teach freshman composition. They love me. They love the interview. They were ready to give me, you know, four classes in the fall and stuff like that. And they, but then they had rules about like, well, you also have to attend church services and you also have to attend like mass and like, and stuff like that. And I was like, 
man, I want to make jokes about poops and dicks and stuff like that. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. That sounds silly. And like dishonest and like, you know, I have, I have a horrible chronic disease called integrity. And so I was just like, I can't do this. And so I, I dropped that completely. And, uh, basically what happened was I was like, well, what do I do? Well, I, I have been freelance writing, you know, picking up odd jobs here and there as a freelance writer since about 2001. And so I, my first, didn't call it copywriting at the time, didn't know it was called copywriting at the time. My first copywriting gig was in the summer of 2015. Um, and I got it from posting up Craigslist ads. Like, hey, anybody need a writer? Like, I, I will I will do am writing. I will do writing for you. And um, knock some things out of the park. I ended up ghostwriting a book for a business professor. Um, and I, I was making money as a freelancer, making enough money to sustain myself. But um, I wanted the security and stability, and so I ended up applying for a part-time job um, as a proofreader at a small little company called Palm Beach Research Group that eventually became Legacy Research Group, mm-hmm. now a part of MarketWise, the parent company of Sandburn Associates, where Tanya, Tanya uh, currently works. And so, yeah, uh, it is a small world. I do not want to paint it. But, yeah, I started out as a proofreader at Agora, and I, I got it because I was like, eh, I might as well get some extra income. Mm-hmm. I moved up from there to from proofer to uh, publisher and copywriter within uh, about 13 months. So, Wait, so you were a publisher at some point? Um, yeah, so in December of 2016, Mark Ford basically said, like, hey, I, I want to break off my division of Palm Beach Research Group and go somewhere else. Are you going to be my guy? Uh, I was like, okay. And so I became the publisher of Creating Wealth Publications and – we attached that business to uh, Agora Financial. We tried to launch there. Um, that was in t- late 2017. Uh, you know, I wrote the copy. I was the publisher, handled all the marketing, stuff like that. Um, you know, wrote the launch package. And, it, you know, it was kind of a middling package. At the time, like, crypto was working exceedingly well. Like, you know, all these get-rich-quick kinds of messages were working really well. And so, like, Mark's message of, like, slow the F down, enjoy life. You know, real wealth is not about like how much ROI you get. Like that message just wasn't resonating with the list. Um, and so he was a little disheartened by that and he decided, yeah, I'm going to retire. But it was like the seventh time he retired. <laughs> Could you share with our audience who Mark Ford is and like how important he's been in your journey? Of course. Uh, Mark Ford, otherwise known by his pen name, Michael Masterson, has written uh, a number of books, uh, most famously Ready, Fire, Aim, but uh, he's written a number of books that were bestsellers, including Automatic Wealth, Reluctant Entrepreneur, Seven Years to Seven Figures, um, The Pledge. Uh, he is a very prolific writer. He started the blog Early to Rise, which was basically one of the first, like, copywriting slash business guru slash entrepreneurship guru blogs like ever like on the internet and it was started like as a a listserv email that then was turned into a blog and i think it was the year 2000 or 2001 Uh, nobody knew what the hell to do with the internet back then or like how how direct response would even work on the internet but uh, hey you know here we are and his his fame kind of grew, but, you know, he got to start in the, the 80s, basically writing, you know, sales copy for, like, tchotchkes and TVs from China and stuff like that. Like, you know, selling knockoff products and, you know, like, newsletters about psychic powers and shit like that. <laughs> um, 
he hooked up with Agora in 1993. Uh, he and Bill Bonner uh, were acquainted, but they were competitors for many years. So I think the second or third time Mark Ford retired, he decided, you know, these becoming an octo millionaire was not enough for him. And so he went back to work and he got a job consulting, like being a partner with Agora and grew Agora to what it is today with Bill Bonner. Um, Mark Ford, uh, after I got out of the proofing pool, um, I was noticed by my current business partner, Lindsay. Um, she noticed that I was a rising talent, that I was a go-getter. Uh, because what I was doing in the proofing pool was like, I would go into the office and I would proof all my stuff and I would be bored. And so I'd just be reading the newsletters that we did. And I noticed that a number of the newsletters had like, you know, briefs, little pockets of like other information, book reviews, things like that. And so what I did was I just started as an employee, started writing stuff on spec and sending them to the managing editors being like, Hey, like, you know, I know you need content. Like, what do you think about publishing this? Um, and you know, since I had so much experience as a freelance writer, like, you know, that was, it was an easy transition. And so within three months of getting hired as a part-time proofreader, I was bumped up to assistant managing editor. A few months later was managing editor. And then, you know, by the end of 2016, that wraps us right around. But Mark Ford was essentially my first mentor as a copywriter. And it's funny. Um, the first copy that I ever sent to him in 2016 was he responded and I quote, this copy sounds like copy. Fucking stop it. <laughs> Rewrite this so that your copy doesn't sound like copy. So that that's the first feedback that I ever got from Mark Ford about copy that I had written. Oh, that's like, well, my my copy chief has a, a gentler way of saying that. It, it looks like copy, but it smells like copy. And it smells like copy, but, you know, mm. it rewrite this. Um Basically, when it sounds uh, when it sounds too salesy, right, and and like uh-huh. sales pitchy, and not like connecting with people on an authentic level. Yeah. Um. So, I remember you sharing a lot of things um, with the Copy Collective about because I know people were like so many people are asking like how do you find a mentor. Um, how you get someone to mentor you, and you're like, it's it's a lot more complicated than that, and a lot of these things happen organically. Do you want to share um, some of the stuff that you shared in the Discord? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, there's so much that I've shared, so you're gonna have to like, you know, calibrate me as I sure. <laughs> as I sort of, you know, shotgun out answers. But since you start with mentors, like, you know, let's talk about mentorship for a moment. Mentorship and copywriting. I think there's a there's a common misconception that people need a mentor to start copywriting. And um, I think that that misconception is proliferated by people who sell mentorship and who try to position themselves as an expert that is, you know, willing to step down from the cloud and, you know, accept the plebs. And, you know, if you pay me enough, I guess I'll help you, you know, stuff like that. Um, but here's the thing, like, what are your common questions when you're a newbie? It's like, okay, well, what even is copy? How, 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 where does copywriting go? Should I write copy in a word document or a Google document? Like, these are the kinds of questions that I get from people that are true newbies. Like they don't know anything. And so here's the thing, all the answers to those kinds of questions, they're out there. They're available for free. And like, like, 
even more advanced stuff like the role of copywriting, how to think about copywriting, how to think about sales, how to actually like write copy and research copy. You know, my business puts all that stuff out there for free so that people don't feel like they have to pay for mentorship. And so I feel about mentorship the same way that I feel about um, getting critiques on copy, which is learn everything that you can, everything possible on your own. Only when you are like looking around at stuff, reading books, and you're like, I'm not learning anything. Where do I go from here? That's the point when you get a mentor. That's the point when getting a mentor actually makes sense. Because it's at that point where you need some other set of eyes to come and be like, well, you're missing this and this and this and this. Stuff that you don't know that you don't know. But here's the thing. When you're starting out, you know that you don't know stuff. And so just get all that stuff out of the way first before you actually seek out a mentor. Oh, thank you. You're just like that. You took the words right out of my mouth. Um, yeah, there's a lot. I think there's a lot that people can do on their own to be like resourceful and like self-sufficient to a point where you need that external eye. And by the time you've reached that stage, you're no longer um how do I say this nicely? Like being a pest to someone whose help you would like to get. And um, I don't know, because uh, how do I put this? How do I put this nicely? Like, don't. Just <laughs> if you value that person's time, then you need to figure out the stuff that, that you need to figure out on your own first and and see what are, are things that you genuinely need help with and also how do you approach that that mentorship or that working relationship with like respect for the other person's time? I mean, something that that kind of drove me crazy in free communities is sometimes I, I felt that people felt entitled to the time of more experienced copywriters and just like I wasn't even experienced. I was, you know, part of your community. And, and when people know that I'm an, I was an English teacher, they would they would ask me to teach them stuff. And I, I was like, I did, like, free overtime for six years. I don't want to do that anymore. Please don't do this to me. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I think by the time you've gotten out there and, and, looked up resources on your own, um, practiced on your own, which I'm going to ask Sean to share with you in a moment, like some of the practices he shared that really like fast-tracked everything for me. Like you have to do all of that to a point where you know the questions that are meaningful enough to like ask someone who's more experienced. And like in my case, I actually, you know, eventually I was like, I, I, I can't write copy on my own anymore. Like I did everything Sean said. I put my copy away in a drawer for 10 days and then went back to it. And I was like, I still can't see what else. And I was like, okay, um, let's look for something. Um, and I joined Copy Chief. And even then, I was like, I don't want to uh, bug anybody. Um, all I did was just try to contribute to the community. And that, for me, that's how mentorship came about organically. Like, people saw the effort and, and then um, reached out to help. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, no, I, I think it does. And if I may in, interpolate a response to sort of what you've just put out there, um, you know, there's a fine line between like 
you know, appearing as an asset versus appearing as a, a as a pest. And what I have found over the years is that mentors and experienced people, they they can recognize when somebody is being an asset. And it's typically people who, you know, are self-starters, who find the answers to basic questions on their own and like ask more nuanced, complex questions, you know, based at like after clearly displaying that they have, um, you know, the sort of basic knowledge that is necessary. Um, and in general, like mentors and more experienced people really respond well to people who just show drive and initiative and do make an effort to help others as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, almost all of the, how should I say, uh, success that I've had in copy that has come from like trying to strike that balance between like, you know, having healthy boundaries, of course, you know, you can't answer everything, uh, but also just being exceedingly generous and helpful with other people. And I think, you know, it's, this is basic Robert Caldini, you know, influence kind of stuff. Yeah. People respond reciprocally to people who give. Mm-hmm. And when one gives, things tend to fall back. I, you know, I, we don't need to get in, like woo woo with like the secret kind of stuff. You know, <laughs> uh, what is the theory? Uh, something like the universe, like, like the law uh, of attraction. Yeah, that's it. Awesome. That's it. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't buy into any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's much more simpler, much more simple to just understand that human psychology, like you know, we have these built-in mechanisms that drive guilt, and when we see somebody give something to us, we want to give something back. Yeah, and so. I think, I think that mentorship and mentors and experienced people, you know, they recognize that. They recognize when somebody is like willing to give and willing to do and willing to put in the work. It's obvious, like if you know what to look for. Yeah, I think just to sneak in something really quick in there, um, I think the internet has also distorted the way we approach our fellow human beings. And sometimes I see some of the messages I get. I was like, I don't think you would say this to me <laughs> if you met me on the street. Like, would you go to a stranger like um, and and uh, ask for their labor like out of the blue without introducing yourself or um, getting to know who they are first? So it's it's a lot more basic and simple than like the the woo of the law of attraction, which I don't buy into either, is just, like, treating each other, like, um, being being a decent human being. Um, Shocking how that works. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, Sean was the, I know that, I mean, I don't know if it came from you. I've heard this practice from, like, a few different places, but you were the first person to, like, introduce me to the idea, like, uh, of reading copy every day, mark, uh, marking up copy every day, writing copy every day, and what's the last Coming up with an writing idea. Writing an idea. Yeah. Um, so that actually, I learned that from Joe Schrieffer. I don't know if uh, he's the origin of it, but he, Joe Schrieffer was the publisher, executive publisher, and a copywriter for Agora Financial. He, it, it, you know, you meet some people in life, and they are just, like, they, like, you just speak to them for 10 seconds and you instantly recognize, oh my God, this person is so competent and so charismatic and so kind and so cool. Um, Joe Schrieffer is one of those people. Uh, Bill Bonner and Mark Ford are both those kinds of people as well. Like, I don't think there's a more charismatic 
person on the planet than Bill Bonner. But uh, Joe Schwefer, he was teaching copywriting. And one of the things that he recognized and that I think most people need to recognize is that you learn copy from reading and writing copy. And um, that sort of lined up with my own, you know, how I learned copy, which was, um, you know, I read two books. Um, I read Great Leads and I read Persuasion, both by Michael Masterson, Mark Ward. And I actually messaged Mark and I said, so I read these two books. What should I read next? Should I get a course from AWAI? Like, what should I do? And Mark wrote back, and this is exactly what he said. That's enough theory for now. Go read great copy. Go mark up and read great copy and then start writing copy. Just get the, get a toehold in theory and then start actually like absorbing and producing. And that's a big thing that I think a lot of people miss out. You know, people that are interested in copywriting, like I'll find out very quickly, like, you know, they still browse the internet with ad block on, you know, they don't click on the, the links that they get in emails. They don't, participate in the thing that they want to do. And so, of course, they have no idea what copy is because they never actually read copy. And so one of the best things that a person can do is just have a daily practice that allows them to gain exposure to the language and the ideas and the structures of copywriting, whatever form that may take, whether it's email, sales pages, landing pages, squeeze pages, other types of pages, whatever. Um, and the advice that Joe Schrieffer gave to achieve that was, listen, if you want to learn long-form direct response copywriting, got to read a promo a day. Some of these things are like 60 to 120 pages long. Read the whole thing in a single sitting. Just do it. That is going to train you to like, one, be diligent and one, be deliberate in like your actual practice. And like, it, it teaches you how to focus. Um, and he means like actively read it, like mark it up, actually like notice patterns, make connections, things like that. He said that in addition to that, you also got to write, you know, a page of copy a day. You know, what is a page? It's like 200 to 300 words. Like anybody can do that. And also like it can be like the part of something that you're building over time. If you write a page a day, man, you're going to end up the year with 365 pages. That's a book's length of whatever it is you're doing. You know, one page a day adds up quick and, you know, like one page a day, like say you are writing a promo, you know, you write one page a day and, you know, let's leave revising, you know, off to the side of this conversation for a moment. You know, that's two months is the typical time frame that, you know, we expect a promo to be done, you know, eight weeks, two months. And hey, guess what? Two months is about the amount of days that you would get if you wrote a page a day. That would lead you to have a promo in your hands. And then the other thing that he said was come up with an idea a day. And this is something that I've actually found a number of people struggle with. People generally don't, they don't know what is meant by an idea. And most of that is because they don't read idea-driven copy. Um, just for an example, like, an idea might be, for example, hey, what if we have a, you know, an advertorial page between this PPC ad and a landing page? You know, that's a marketing idea. A sales copy idea might be something along the lines of like, hey, you know, these master limited partnerships, this kind of stock is paying, you know, distributing income and it's being registered with the IRS as royalties. Well, who else gets royalties? Uh, people who write books. Hey, 
you know, we can, we can write a promo basically around the idea of like, if you want to get royalties like Barack Obama, <laughs> well, guess what? Barack Obama gets this much in royalties. If you want, if you want access to this income stream royalties, here's a way to do it by master limited partnerships. And so that's, that's an idea. And those are the kinds of ideas that financial copywriters are expected to come up with. But there are many other ideas too. Um, like for example, you know, I was reading a uh, diet sales letter relatively recently and the sort of the ordinary idea, the, the sort of non transubstantiation transubstantiation is, you know, both I think Mark and Bill were raised Catholic. So when they came up with all these terms, there's that sort of like, it confused uh, me has, so much the first time I was like, isn't this from, cause like, like yeah, is, I don't know which of the, the, is it Catholic? Yeah, it's Catholicism. And so Catholicism. <laughs> and yeah, the, all the people that came up with these terms like were deeply Catholic. And so like, <laughs> the, you know, transubstantiation, um, you know, and several other terms come from Catholicism as well. But transubstantiation is uh, when Jesus turned water into wine. And transubstantiation, trans, I can't even say it, transubstantiation <laughs> in copy is when you take an ordinary idea or an ordinary mechanism and you transform it into something magical or something wonderful, something completely different from what it was. Still the same base matter, but now extraordinary in a reader's mind. And um, this weight loss sales letter that I was reading, uh, the ordinary idea was about how cortisol affects our tendency to hold on to adipose tissue. That is, you know, fat matter. And so basically one way to, you know, reduce your body's tendency to hold on to fat is to lower the levels of cortisol in the blood. Well, how do you do that? You can reduce, you know, the level of stress that you're exposed to. How does one, you know, lower stress? Well, there are actually some supplements that can help do this. Well, if you take a supplement that relaxes you and, you know, lowers your cholesterol, we might call that a fat burning reset switch. That's the idea of that promo. Now, all of a sudden, like you see, like there's a series of logical steps that goes in between. Hey, you know, this is a thing. You know, this is a mechanism that causes a thing to happen. How can we turn that into an idea that would be alluring to people? Because if you, you know, say to people, hey, lower your stress and you could lose weight. Um, everybody's going to ignore that because people, people don't want to be told what to do necessarily. They just want solutions. They want that, you know, magic black box where they press the button, the thing that they want in their life magically comes out. And that's, you know, sort of the logic of copy. And that's the logic of spinning out ideas, crafting those automatic boxes that spit out results that people desire. Yeah. Um, do, do you have like a process that you go through yourself or coming up with you know, actually I've noticed that almost every financial copywriter I've met defines big idea differently <laughs> so how do you define it and like what what's your own process for like um, coming up with these ideas uh, I mean I'm about I'm actually in the middle of writing a newsletter for uh, the copy that email list about big ideas like what what they are and the first thing that I start off with is like everybody is confused about what a big idea is and so what's funny is I actually conducted a still to this day unpublished interview with Mark Ford in 2018, where I basically asked him, like, what is the origin of the big idea? Where does it come from? What is it? And, and like, how do people get it? And 
I'm incorporating segments of that interview in this particular newsletter. And he's basically saying, like, nobody knows what the frick a big idea is. Is that people and part of the problem is that people have taken like, oh, you know, if you want to sell something, you have to offer like one specific thing that is going to be the solution to the problems. And what marketers did was they said, oh, your copy sucks, your marketing sucks because it lacks a big idea. And Mark is just like, no, like you know, of, of his entire career, maybe five to 35 percent of his sales came from big idea promotions. That is promotions that are driven by an arresting, evocative, intellectually stimulating, emotionally compelling idea. Uh, a notion like, you know, getting royalties like Barack Obama or um, the notion that uh, America's um, uh, so not sovereignty, but uh, superiority uh, is intrinsically tied to the U.S. dollar being a reserve currency and how America's superiority is being put into threat because of challenges to the uh, U.S.'s dollar as a reserve currency. That's a big idea. You know, if people like understand that idea and recognize it, they're like, oh, crap, well, what do I do? And that is one of the emotions that leads people to buy. And so big idea promos, you know, they're very timely. They're very specific. Like it's it's like lightning in a bottle. Like, you know, one of the things that Kyle Milligan, another uh, copywriting YouTuber and a friend of mine, like to say is that like people need to stop pointing to end of America as, as being like this bastion of copy that people need to read because big idea copy is so specific to like a moment, yeah. a, a zeitgeist, a, a, a feeling that people have. Um, it's like, it really is like trying to capture lightning in a bottle. And for that reason, like most copy that sells well, it's actually gimmicks. It's, it's, you know, small ideas. It's, um, you know, good offers. It's uh, it's mostly gimmicks. Let's be real. Uh, like for example, you know, these forty eight simple tricks to like boost your retirement income or something like that. Or like you know, the four words you can say to a bank teller to get free silver. Things like that. Um, it, those are those are all gimmicks. They're not ideas, but people think they're ideas. Um, rather big ideas. Uh, they are certainly ideas, but an idea is really it has a freshman composition player like it's it's a thesis it's an argument it is something that is debatable it is a thing that you can prove or disprove and that's important for a sales argument something that you would do in a piece of sales copy because you are saying a thing hey this is a thing that's happening and also here's the proof and you can prove it with stories with facts with statistics stories tend to sell better and also like if you you know, the end result, the end logical result of this argument is, hey, you should probably buy this thing so that you can tap into whatever it is I was talking about. And so, you know, really big ideas. Um, the biggest big idea person was Bill Barnard. And he, he, you know, there's so many things that you need to have in sales copy to, like, make it work. You know, a good offer, promises, proof and backup, like, closes, you know, you know, high pressure closes. And Bill Bonner was just like, nah, fuck all that. Like I, I just want to write really compelling, interesting ideas about the world and talk to people about them. And so Bill Bonner was a, the sort of pioneer, sort of like, um, how should I say, co-opted the term big idea from David Ogilvy, a, mm -hmm. a famous yeah. uh, ad man who uh, once famously said that um, if you want your advertisement to stand a chance, it has to have a big idea. Advertisements about big ideas, uh, prospects will pass by them like a ship in the night. Mm -hmm. um, not 
what does he say? Not one in 100 advertisements have a big idea. It was the often omitted <laughs> end of that quote. And, you know, really what David Ogilvie was talking about in terms of big ideas was like, hey, if you want to make cigarette smoking cool, show a picture of a cowboy smoking a cigarette. That was his version of an idea. And Mark Ford, when I interviewed him, you know, he talked about like, that's not really an idea, an arguable thesis. That's just a notion that people have. What are the feelings and things that people think when they see a cowboy? Okay. When they see a cowboy and they feel and think these things and have these notions, how does that associate with cigarette smoking? That's what's going on there psychologically. And that's really an important thing for people to sort of like tease out and distinguish. Um, but so many people misuse and abuse the term idea or big idea in copy yeah. that it's almost like it's one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, somebody's going to come up to you and say the word irregardless. And you just in order for the conversation to progress, you can't correct them. You just have to accept that this person is going to say to you the word irregardless. And that's it. There's nothing you can do. So I was curious you know, hearing you talk about like the freshman composition thing, um, when you were you first started learning copywriting, do you transfer any of like your skills as like an English major or a professor to the process, especially like marking up copy, dissecting the sales argument, stuff like that? Yeah, what's interesting is that um, you know I. My focus when I was getting my first master's degree was in uh, post-structuralism, deconstruction, uh, things like that, postmodernism. And one of the things, the common uh, threads between deconstruction and uh, I believe it was um, Russian formalism and also, uh, was it Greenblatt? I forget. I forget the, the thread of theory that he belonged to. Uh, the sort of American version of Russian formalism. But basically the common thread is this notion of deep reading. Like what are like every single word, if we look at it and break out down a text, not in terms of the big themes that it's talking about, but like word for word, sentence by sentence, punctuation mark by punctuation mark. What is actually going on here? What is under the hood of this writing? And the cool thing about learning that and practicing that is it really prepared me for like how to break down copy, how to annotate copy, how to think about copy, because copywriting operates in this different register of language. You know, the way that you speak to a person on the street versus a person on the internet, uh, it's different from how you would speak to a bank teller, for example. Yeah. You know, that's the difference between a register of language. And copywriting has a register. Some people write in this very salesy, you know, as we talked about before, uh, pushy, aggressive kind of register. But really good copywriting is more like, uh, how should I say, almost conversational in nature. It's very friendly. It's very supportive. And learning how to speak in that register and how to, like, write words and sentences that cut out the fluff and very succinctly deliver messages in that register, you know, it requires a lot of deep reading, a lot of thinking, a lot of practice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's why I was, like, really grateful for having a literature background because I was, like, I just went from, like, marking up 
poems with my students to like marking up sales letters. And I was like, oh, okay. And and like you had this really handy list of, you know, stuff to look out for in promos, like um, throwing rocks uh, at the villain and, um, oh God, it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, admissions of guilt. I was like, okay, once you start, once you know the components to look out for, you know, um, it's really like, for me, it was like marking up a literary text and, and just transferring my skills as a teacher and even as like a, a student over to being a, a student of copy. Hey guys, so this conversation I had with Sean went on for, I think, almost 70 minutes. So I'm going to split this up into two episodes and this conversation will be continued. So stay tuned for next week's episode. We'll continue this conversation. I promise you it's going to be lots of fun. And I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. All right. See you next on the next episode of Classroom Copy.